Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. The world's population is currently 7.6 billion inhabitants and it is expected to increase dramatically to approximately 9.8 billion inhabitants by 2050. This episode's conversation is about how the worldwide leadership can gain focus in solving the global challenge of feeding the next 2 billion people. Mark Sawaki is an advisor, researcher and investor. Based in San Francisco, he's worked in over 80 countries to date in a wide variety of sectors including financial services, retail, media, telco, manufacturing, healthcare and pharmaceuticals and government. He has spent a considerable amount of time in the past few years researching the global agriculture sector and assessing its state of readiness to feed 9.8 billion inhabitants. 2050, Feeding the Next 2 Billion, a Florence Guild conversation with Mark Sawaki. It's good to be here tonight. I, was, I think I was last in this space about almost two years ago. I see a few familiar faces, I think, that, that have been uh, uh, resident here for some time. Um, where to start? So I allegedly reside in, in Silicon Valley, but... Um, I do long haul for a living. I do about a half a million long haul uh, my, uh, kilometers a year. So I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place usually. Uh, this trip, I'm just down, arrived yesterday. I leave uh, back for the US on, on, uh, on Friday. Um, my day job, I work with um, big multinationals in a lot of sectors, uh, helping them uh, suck less. <laughs> I think they. <laughs> I think they suck a lot. Like I ask people in Australia, you know, who do you hate more? Is it ComBank or Telstra or Foxtel? And usually it's, you know, all of the above, right? But but they have a lot of. I think they have a lot of improvements to be made. So our, our my day job is at the vortex of innovation, disruptive innovation, and strategy and uh, and org change. Um, and then every every uh, and I've lived here one and a half times. Uh, I've, uh, so I've had a business relationship with Australia for about 20 years. I, 96, 97, I was living in Sydney. And then the half time's another story over cocktails later. But uh, uh, I dated a woman here for quite a long time, and I was back and forth. Um, uh, what else? Uh, so I've had lots of uh, clients in different sectors over the years. Uh, I did the turnaround of the smash repair business at the NRA, NRMA some time ago. and. AMP's been a client. Um, uh, I've done work at Westfield, uh, Challenger, Clearview Financial, uh, Colonial First State. So a lot of different sectors. I, I get down here four to six times a year, typically. Um, and, and this topic, every couple of years, I like to like bite off on a big topic and figure out, not, not that a client's paying me to do it, but just go deep on a topic. Um, and then four or five years ago, it was uh, brain cancer. And I got really close to Charlie Teo, 
and uh, Cure Brain Cancer Foundation, and we uh, and I was an advisor for several years to Kath Stace and and to Charlie, and uh, it was fascinating to see the the issues why brain cancer is being solved and. Uh, Australia at that time is fighting, uh, it's punching well above its fight weight and doing some really interesting things, but there's just a lot of political and organizational issues why, why brain cancer isn't uh, having a cure. And I've lost several friends. I've lost four friends to brain cancer in the last seven or eight years, so it was a really uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, and, and then a couple years ago, so I, I ticked the box, I kind of understand what's going on with brain cancer. Uh, and then a couple years ago, uh, food. And in fact, I had this client, um, uh, uh, not CFS, CFS are the financial guys, um, the, the roofing, Monnier Roofing, they're owned by, who's their parent? CSR, right? CSR, North Ride. And they brought me down for a couple of days to talk about some stuff. And we were having all these wacky ideas, like, why don't you just give away roofing and, you know, put solar panels on and, and do roofing as a service? You know, you'll probably make money, right? I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, just give the roof away and just bank all the, the bank all the solar credits, you know. And and then I said, well, why don't you do like, why don't you put a vertical, uh, like a rooftop garden on every single house in Sydney, and you know, just turn them all into farms. That was crazy, stupid ideas. And uh, and I was kind of crowdsourcing these ideas. And uh, uh, Craig Dunn, the former chief exec of AMP, is a good mate of mine. And and I said, what's going on with like vertical farming? He said, oh, it's not an issue in Australia. We've got plenty of land, and you know, we don't care about that stuff. But he did put me in touch with this guy. He's an eighth generation wheat farmer, a guy named Andrew Bloor. He's got a huge farm down in the Southern Highlands. And we got to talking, and we've been working on this project for a couple of years, which I'll talk about a little later this morning, or tonight. But we, uh, I said morning, because it's morning in San Francisco, I think, right now. But, <laughs> but uh, I don't do jet lag. But we got to, we got to talking, and, uh, and we are pursuing something uh, in broadening the space, but I really went deep. So I kind of want to break. This is a conversation, not a presentation. So stop me anytime, and we'll have a dialogue, because we've met before. All right, so here's the big picture. The big picture is we're going from 7.6 billion people today on planet Earth, Mother Earth, to by 2050, 9.8 billion. That's 2.2 billion new mouths to feed. And the big question is, can we feed them? That's a lot. So 2.2 billion people over 30 years is 200,000 a day. That's one Nui every other day for 30 years. People are like, we don't need another Nui, right? We don't need, but, or I think, I think Wollongong's about similar size. But every other, every day we're adding 200,000 mouths to feed. And do we have the infrastructure to feed them? Um, food, think of food. Food, food at, at its surface is a pretty easy thing to understand, right? We take solar energy and convert it to chemical energy, right? The, 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 the sun beats down all the solar energy and, 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 and it creates, uh, through plants, it creates photosynthesis and that creates a big pile of, uh, let's just call it biomass. There's carbohydrates in there, there's nutrients in there, there's proteins in there, and the vegetarians eat the biomass and then the herbivores wait for the animals to eat the plants and then they eat the animals. That's how it works, right? You know, I, I was fascinated when I looked at this, and people always say, well, how, how, do, how do vegetarians, do you, are you getting enough protein, right, and all that, right? All protein that we consume comes from plants. It's more efficient to get it from animals, 
But guess where animals get their protein? Plants. And, and animals are, guess what? They're herbivores, they're not carnivores. Except for a few, right? Bears and sharks, and, right? But for the most part, animals are herbivores themselves. And you know, the, some people like to get their biomass directly from plants. Some like to go the longer route and get it from animals that eat the plants, right? Um, there's some paradoxes. So we're, we're struggling with this issue of can we feed 9.8 billion people? Um, I've been doing a lot of work in the last year in uh, Nigeria. I get to Nigeria about every six weeks or eight weeks in the last year. And Nigeria, 180 million people today, it's going to 440 million people. Um, Nigeria makes India look rich. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unmitigated disaster. It's an it's a incredibly poor country. 60% of that country lives on less than a dollar a day. But they have such high growth rates uh, that by the year 2050, Nigeria's gonna be the third most populous country in the world beyond India and China. They can't handle 180 million people. I mean, there's just, there's squalor everywhere you look. And what happens, and the, the, the growth is in the uh, Muslim North, uh, not the Christian South. The Muslim North are having nine and 10 children. Um, it's, an, it's, an, it's an unmitigated disaster. You're not gonna be able to feed, you know, that's a couple hundred million people coming online uh, that they have no idea how they're, no idea how they're gonna feed. Uh, one, one, and so, one paradox we discovered was uh, 1.8 billion people uh, in the world are overweight, and of that 1.8 billion, you know, and of that 1.8 billion people, uh, 600 million are obese. And obese, the definition of obese is 30% um, BMI, 30% uh, body mass index of uh, a fat, and yet 800 million people go to bed uh, hungry every night around the world. So, so some people argue that we just have a distribution problem. We just, you know, that, that rich, high GDP countries are consuming more calories than they need and they ought to be giving those to low GDP countries. Um, I don't really believe that because I think those are empty calories, right? It's hard to give them a big soda can. <laughs> Say, good luck, <laughs> good luck with the soda for dinner, you know? Um, it, this problem in the next 30 years gets exasperated. It's not just food we need to worry about. Um, we need to worry about water. Um, if you believe in climate change, uh, you, you've got to believe in uh, that, that, that water depletion is a much bigger issue. So, so, so set aside you know, you know, the, the arguments about climate change. Um, worry much, much more about about um, about water depletion and and you know water is obviously very critical to, to biomass growth and 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 our our environment but that we're we're um, uh, right now we're borrowing a huge debt on the aquifers around the world and it's a much more much more pronounced problem uh, the other the other thing that's happening is with um, with this growth in population there's also some countries that are doing very well economically during this growth. Uh, namely India, and and largely as countries get richer, they they tend to consume um, more resource uh, uh, more resource heavy foods, right? So you know I always was under this illusion that you know hey in India the Hindus don't eat a lot of meat, uh, but meat uh, uh, livestock consumption is going to grow by over 120 percent 
uh, in the next decade. You know, as the as Indians become uh, wealthier, and they're doing quite well economically, as they become wealthier, you know, they don't want mashed peas for dinner anymore. They want a steak, <laughs> and and that also is going to put you know put put huge pressure on. Uh, on the system, so so we, we got to worry about food, but we got to worry about water. We got to worry about uh, we got to worry about um, um, you know these this 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 consumption growing in in resource intensive uh, foods. Uh, the other the other thing to I, I guess to to think about or consider is farming hasn't changed much. The the agriculture industry hasn't changed much in a couple hundred years. It's still you know, a broad acre farm is is set out somewhere in in, in Australia, and it's uh, it's prone to all the all the vulgarities of of weather. Right? You have droughts, you have floods, you have uh, insects and disease, and and on and on and on, and, and and it can be very very cyclical crop. You know, you're sitting here, and like I, we don't need to worry about this. Uh, Australia has uh, 88 million hectares of land being used for livestock or for uh, uh, plant product. 15 million hectares alone just in wheat. You know, that's, that's almost a hectare a person. You got plenty, right? You don't need to worry about it. So goes the argument. But I think we're, we're going to move into a world of the, the, the real geopolitical issue is one of haves and have-nots. So let's... Uh, this is supposed to be interactive, so ask questions anytime. time. Um, let's move into solutions. I think the solutions kind of bifurcate into two markets. One is, you know, how do we keep up with uh, what, what production methods are out there to meet the need of feeding 2.2 billion new people in the next 30 years? And, and we'll just, yeah, we'll just call that production increase. And then I think another one is to slow down the, the, the rate of of uh, consumption. So on the first with solutions, you'll hear you hear a bunch of uh, terms bandied about. I'll, I'll kind of rattle them off quickly and kind of give you some pros and cons, or we'll just kind of talk about them. But you'll hear vertical farming, uh, not a new term. The term's been around over 100 years, first introduced in about 1910. You hear vertical farming, you hear indoor farming, you're going to hear uh, urban urban agriculture, urban farming. Uh, you might hear CEA or controlled environment agriculture. Those are, those are the main levers that people are thinking about uh, uh, to meet this increased demand. Oh, back to, back to the big picture. Um, one other data point to think about is uh, Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus. And in 1798, he's an economist and a, and a uh, uh, Christian preacher in, in, in the UK, in Surrey, and, and he, he basically came up with this argument to say that, that population growth is logarithmic and, and, and food production is, is linear, and we're always going to have this problem. Um, and to date, he's always been proven wrong. To date, we've always bent the, the food production curve to meet the population growth curve. Uh, but a collection of economists say that, that finally, after 280 years, whenever that was, don't make me do the math, 230 years, 220 years, that he was probably right. He's been, they've, been, they've been saying he's wrong for 220 years, but now they're saying he's actually probably right. 
um, that we may not be able to significantly bend the food production curve to meet the population growth curve. That was his, and that was his theory in 1798, uh, Malthus, or Malthusian economics, it's often called. So the solutions are around CEA and indoor farming and urban farming and, 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 and vertical farming, um, container farming. You've probably seen, you take these container ships from, uh, containers from, from China and you build a bunch of stuff in there. Um, so top to bottom, the, the, oh, and rooftop gardens. Rooftop gardens are small scale. They, they don't work well. Uh, you could put a rooftop garden on every building in Melbourne and it's not gonna feed a couple blocks. Uh, you've, got, you've got huge, huge cost. They're cute, you can grow arugula up there for the, for the fancy restaurant downstairs, but you're not gonna feed people at scale. You're not gonna feed another 200,000 new people a day with, with rooftop gardens. First of all, engineering, you just can't use every roof. Uh, sec you know, there's equipment up there, HVAC equipment and stuff. Secondarily, just getting that stuff down every day, up and down, it's not, it's not gonna work. It doesn't scale really well. So that's, that's uh, rooftop gardens. Uh, urban farming, and urban uh, is based around this notion of food miles. I don't know what the, I don't know what the average number of food miles is in the US, or in Australia. In the US, it's about 1,500 miles. So if you think of your plate of food tonight as a bill of materials, and you decompose the bill of materials and say, how far did everything travel to end up on my plate to make the ingredients of tonight's dinner? Um, in the U.S., that number is about 1,500 miles. And, and the view is if we shrink these food miles, there's all kinds of benefit. There's, there's benefits in, in freshness and in, in uh, reducing waste, and it's good for the environment, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, but the, 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 the challenge is I think people have taken that notion too far, and they think they're going to, you know, put it in the CBD, and you don't need to. And the reality is you just need to be a couple hundred kilometers from, you know, from the city center. You don't need to build it in the city center. The city center is, uh, the CBD is, is um, too expensive, you know, to build these farms in. So unless it's a leftover plot of land that nobody's ever going to build on, the, the urban farming projects are, are hitting a wall. Um, you know, the whole notion of CEA, Controlled Environment Agriculture, says that you can control every single variable. And when you can control heat and light and, and pH levels and nutrient levels and, 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 and water levels, by controlling every single one of those variables, and at the same time having a barrier from disease and from viruses and from, from, um, from insects, um, you know, that you can very, very efficiently, uh, you know, produce, produce food. So the, the, the vertical farming concept, and, and there's been hundreds of millions of dollars raised. Um, most recently, people like Bill Gates and, and Eric Schmidt have put $200 million to work uh, in a company called Plenty. Uh, before that, on the East, and they're a, they're a San Francisco-based company. And before that, we had a company uh, in, um, on the East Coast in Trenton, New Jersey called uh, Aero Farms, and they'd raised like 75 million. I think their model, um, I think it's going in the right direction, uh, but I think they're misguided in terms of uh, what, they're, what they're producing so, and, and at the scale they're producing. So certainly Aero Farms, which we've kind of uh, deconstructed, and we've looked at, at their at their operating model and their expenses. Um, 
they they are you know so it's, so it's largely a vertical farm, but the the challenge they have is it's still quite subscale. I think they're about four hectares in total, and and, and secondarily they're focused on uh, greens, and I don't think greens are going to feed people either. Um, the reality is we live on grains. The reality is what feeds us are the carbohydrates from uh, ten super grains, right? We like wheat and we like rice and we like corn, and those products are the are the basis of the carb of, of the the efficient carbohydrates that feed us. So you can grow all the tomatoes and arugula and 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 cukes and everything else you want to grow. Great, they're easy to grow, right? You just you just heat the the greenhouse up to 27 degrees and. In, and in, in 45 days, you've got your, your arugula. Actually, you got it in about 30 days. But you can create all that you want. That doesn't create the carbohydrates that people need to live, live on. Um, so they're designing these facilities uh, to grow simple products. Uh, not Greens are very easy to grow. Grains are much harder to grow. So we think the answer is to, to build um, facilities that grow grains and, and are doing it at at scale, uh, so that's kind of that's kind of like CEA and indoor farms, vertical farms, rooftop farms. Yeah, container farms. I think there's a. I think they're going to be a niche market. I think they're going to be used in you know in situations where you need to plunk down, you know, in, in maybe emergency situations. There's been a there's been a major hurricane. There's been a a, a flood. I think you'd be able to put them into disadvantaged communities and you know very quickly in 20 days, maybe 30 days, starting to create. You know, quite a bit of, uh, of biomass for for uh, for people to eat, um, and then and then the other the other solution that that I would put in the category of production growth is, uh, for lack of a better word, I'd call it cellular agriculture. Uh, you might call it GMO or GMC. Um, GMO. Who 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 like? cringes when they hear GMO. I'm going to make this interactive and ask you questions. And you hear GMO and you freak out, right? Some people do, right? Uh, genetically modified organisms. Or GNC is genetically modified crops. You want, to, you want to know the cool acronym now? CRISPR. Let me get this. CRISPR. Let me get this right. Clustered regularly, interspaced, short, Palindromic repeats. What the fuck is that? Excuse me, I was on a little podcast too. Uh, a CRISPR is a is a DNA sequencing of bacteria, where people are going in and modifying that sequence so as to make virus resistant DNA. It's it's next generation GMO, frankly. Um, let's go back to GMO real fast, and then and then we'll we'll talk about CRISPR. But I won't try to repronounce it. It's a anybody know CRISPR before tonight? Anybody heard of CRISPR? It's kind of a big deal. Uh, in 2015, Science Magazine Science Magazine said it's a really really big deal, and Nobel prizes have been given. It's it's supposed to be a big deal, but we haven't heard of it yet. Um, but GMOs, I kind of think GMOs gotten a bad rap, and I don't think they're as bad as people say they are. Uh, we've been doing so. So, cavemen and women, cave people, uh, we started domesticating livestock and domesticating plants 12,000 BC. 
And about that time, we started doing organic GMO. We started selectively putting things together based on their organic traits because we wanted more of that and less of that. I mean, we were, as cave people, altering the outcome of traits of plants. We're still here. We don't have three eyeballs. But what we weren't doing is making those plants and animals infertile to protect the intellectual property that we'd invested in the science. Yes, Warren, you're right. Yes, you're right. Um, I, I, today in 2018, I personally believe there's still good GMO and I think there's bad GMO. But it's the business practices that determine the good and bad. The products are fine. The products. No, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say all the products are fine. I would say that, that there are certain things we've been doing for 40 or 50 years that are entirely healthy. You know, when you go to a Kohl's or a Myers or take your pick, when you go to the, 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 the green grocer, you know, the uniformity of product, which has been around for 50 years, is absolutely the subject of GMO, right? 80% of your fruit and veg is GMO. It is, fact. Well, <laughs> you've, seen a, you've seen the videos where they leave that shit out for like three years and it still looks, you seen that one? I think it's a Big Mac and it's left out for like three years and still looks, still looks good, okay? So that's good, super high level. That's the kind of summary of vertical farms, indoor farms, urban farms, rooftop farms, container farms, and then, and then you know, cellular agriculture is, is what I'm calling it. Um, and, then, and then the other side is how do, we lessen, how do we lessen the impact of what we're already doing, right? And so um, I, I've worked out, and so one way is, one way is uh, vegetarianism. Ve vegan's a weird word because you, like, you can like have five shots of whiskey and eat Oreos and you're technically vegan. You are, not exactly healthy, but that's a vegan diet. So, so vegan is bullshit, it's just a word, right? But plant-based is, is, I believe, is a way to minimize um, the long-term impact. The problem is um, we have between five and 10,000 taste buds in our mouth. And like we want it to taste good. And like a lot of that stuff we don't want to eat, right? And so we're, you know, our mind says, yeah, we should probably eat it, it's probably healthy. And then our mouth is saying, that's crap. I don't want to eat that stuff, mm -hmm. right? But I would say in the last five years, there's been absolutely dramatic improvements of, what, of what's going on. So, so I think, you know, if you, if you look at the, to lessen the impact, and in my research, I've figured out there's actually, there's actually four kinds of, of these vegetarians, uh, or I'll say vegan, but vegetarians. The first kind, is um, purely, purely health and dietary. They just want to eat it because they feel better, and you know they're, they're just they, they, the the physical and, and, and the physical benefits are amazing. And and I'd raise my hand. I, I, that's uh, six months, no dairy, no animal product. I feel great, fine, no problem. The second is um, the moralists. You know, anything with a face, I can't eat it. It's a, you know, it's got two eyes and a mouth and I freak out. And so there's a, there's a, there's a people that are making a moral decision like I can't eat another animal. That's fine. I don't, you know, I 
That's their, that's their pitch, not mine, okay? Um, we're kind of on top of the food chain, and except man-eaters and grizzlies, and we're not at the top, they beat us. Um, and then I think the third kind is um, people that are, that are worried about the long-term impacts on the environment. So the more, they're not moralists, they're not health, but they're th these longer-term trends about the environment. You, you've heard these statistics like a, a kilo of beef takes, you know, what, 1,000 liters of water to produce, you know, one kilo. It's a, they're, they're, they're shockingly large numbers. Um, but but the, I, I've run across a group of people, when I listen to them, they're very um, environmental about their choice. And then the fourth kind, you just can't get to, to shut up. I mean, they just like talk about it like, you know, CrossFit. You want to smack them in the <laughs> smack them in the back of the head, right? Like they just like wear it on their sleeve every day. It's like just shut up, right? So those are the four kinds of people that I see. Uh, but I do believe that if you if you eat lower on the food chain, if we all did it, would have this profound. Well, I think would have a profound impact on. On on, uh, on on the on, on the on the world's food population, you still have a distribution problem, right? Food is produced in certain places, and even if we saved, you know, um, the the statistic is about thirty. Excuse me, twenty four percent of all calories produced, grown, are never consumed, right? We have very long supply chains. The stuff gets it rots. It doesn't get eaten. I mean, that's that's very very sad. We have these problems in places like like Nigeria, but it's really, really hard to get fresh stuff to them from Australia, right? If I don't eat it and I consume less calories because I'm over, uh, obese, getting it there quickly and fresh is still a logistics problem. So, you know, some economists argue that, gosh, if we just figure out that waste problem, we've solved the, the global food problem. Or if we get obese people to eat less, we've solved the food problem. I don't think it's that simple. So, so one is this, this whole vegetarian movement, I think, it's, it's hard to adopt because of our taste buds, but we're seeing some market improvements, which leads me to the next point, and that's what I call alt-meat. And the alt-meat movement is it's kind of bifurcating into two camps. It's either lab-grown, so, so with modern science, we're reproducing uh, a single cell of animal, uh, you know, a, a animal protein, and we're, we're effectively making it replicate, which is kind of scary stuff. It's, it, you're, you're, you're consuming, the way it's done is you're consuming real animal product. It's efficient because you're not growing the bones and the, you know, and the blood and the in, innards and everything else and the skin and, you know, you're just producing the meat kind of efficient that way, I suppose. Um, but people, people morally have a whole problem with that. But the other one, and the other one are these plant-based meat substitutes, which are like insanely good. Like I had, this, I had this UK woman, she was a client, she was visiting San Francisco a couple weeks ago and I put one in front of her. She thought, she honestly thought she was eating a burger. So you got Memphis meats, uh, Beyond meat, uh, impossible Foods Impossible is the one that I gave her. And they've literally, they're using, um, they're using a wheat product and they've, they've, they've been experimenting about five years in the labs, but they've introduced a, um, 
uh, a hemoglobin, like uh, it's a it's a it's a natural vegetable hemoglobin. It's it's a it's a beetroot based product, and and they have mimicked meat, even the blood. So you want it medium rare, and it kind of it's. <laughs> I, I I I kid you not. It's wild, and. and Next time you're in San Francisco, go try one. They're flying off the shelves at 10 bucks a burger. And you eat one, and she goes, you know what? I'm a meat eater. It's not meat, but God, it's pretty good. And, you know, and she ate it, and she goes, I'd do it again. No problem, right? So I think you're going to see more and more of these, of the alt-meat movement, where you know, they, they, they've, tricked, they've, they've tricked your taste buds. They've tricked you visually. They've tricked the scent. You know, if, if you really, in, in, and they're in early days, they're gonna get much better creating you know, plant-based products that mimic uh, animal product for, you know, and livestock product for those, you know, for those people that, you know, I gotta have my burger, you know? Uh, ultimately, you're gonna to have to build vertical farms near the point of consumption. That, that's the real answer. And, and I, said I'm, you know, I said I have a horse in the race. Uh, that's something that for two years I've been broadly, broadly working on. Um, the challenge is one of, um, I'll, I'll explain it here in a second. So let me just go, go through the, the, the last few things and then we'll, we'll get to your question. So, so you've, got the, you've got the vegetarian movement, you've got the alt-meat uh, you know, movement. Um, you know, quite possibly, there's some solutions around, around social engineering. There's some solutions around, you know, can you get a really, really large group of people to commit to a problem and, and fixing it, right? We have a lot of cognitive biases in our head. We, we tend to overestimate the near term and underestimate the far term. And it's not a problem that people think about. You know, who thinks about 2050? I don't, who cares, right? You know, I just, gotta, I just gotta pay the mortgage this month and maybe I'm thinking about my, you know, Christmas holidays. But who's thinking about 2050? Right, we don't think about it. But, um, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's ways to socially engineer an outcome where people Google's been working on this. Did you see the, the, the video last week that Google released about some really scary stuff they're working on? And they said, we're trying to brainwash large scale uh, uh, numbers of people to work on big societal problems. They're trying to, you know, trying to engineer it. So that's, a, that's kind of a far-fetched way to think about it. But those are, the, those are kind of the solutions to minimize, uh, uh, to minimize the growth of, the, of, of food consumption. So I said I had a horse in the race. What I've been working on with Andrew in, in the Southern Highlands is, um, is a vertical farm concept. Uh, we've raised about uh, 30 million to date. We've got to raise another 30 million to go into production. But the design says we can be between 180 and 225 times more productive than a, than a broad acre of, of farmland. So if you, if you take a, I'll do this in, in hectares, not, not uh, acres. But if you take a hectare of farmland, um, it's, you know, it's, it's volatile. Its productivity is volatile because of, because of weather and because of disease, et cetera. And as soon as you put that into a CEA environment, you know, you've put a barrier for the, for the insects and the, and, and the disease, number one. Um, and then number two, you're controlling all of the, uh, the other, uh, levels of height, uh, uh, of heat and light, nutrient levels, water, et cetera. And, and so our design and, and, and where we're, 
where we're waiting for the technology to catch up with is, is, on, is on LED lighting. But our, but our design to, to, to explain the 180 times pr productivity gain is you, you put in, um, follow my math, you have 15 growing layers. Each growing layer is about one meter high. So the whole building structure is only about 18 meters, 17, 18 meters tall with, with all the layers. But you got 15 growing layers, number one. Uh, number two, because of 24 hour lighting, Typical, a typical grow day with we, we have optimal uh, sunlight anywhere in Australia is about you only get about eight hours of sunlight uh, of optimal right the rest is is you know at the edges of the day and it's not optimal on on top of the crops but you only get about eight hours a day and with using LED lighting on every layer you get 24 hour day so now I've gone from 15 layers times three times the productivity so now I'm 45 times more productive use doesn't matter if you use hectares or acres, right? But I'm 40 times more productive per unit. And then the third bit is because it's, because it's a 24 hour grow day, guess what? Plants don't need to sleep, right? So you just grow faster. So depending on what you grow, you can squeeze it uh, phenomenally so. So take, um, take winter wheat, APH1, Australian prime hard. Sounds like a porno. It's not. Mm -hmm. Australian prime hard one is some of the best wheat in the world, and it's and it's it's Australian. It takes 150 days to sow, and you only get one crop a year, right? That's the other problem you have with with broadacre farming is the the lack of biodiversity. You're pulling out the same nutrients every year, and that and that ground becomes dead. But what used to be a single crop turn of 150 days, because I've got a 24-hour grow day, 3x, I've taken that down 3x from 150 days to 50 days. So if I can get, if I can get a crop turn now of winter wheat done in 50 days, well, guess what? 50 times 6 is 300. I still got 65 days to clean the stuff out and plant the new, right? So follow my math. 15 times 3 times 6 is 225. So I can take a single hectare of land and make it 225 times more productive. So it works. Uh, we have a cost problem because the LED lighting right now is still cost prohibitive, uh, but that's coming down dramatically. So anyway, that's some, it's my, uh, it's my other day job. Thanks. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.